right, welcome to day 252 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we'll be looking at Isaiah 20 through 23, Proverbs 22, 17 through 16, and 2 Corinthians 11, verses 1 through 15. Okay, let's begin with Isaiah 20. Here we begin with one of these uh, prophetic sign enactments. So this takes place, we learn, in the year that the commander of chief the commander-in-chief um, sent by Sargon, uh, the king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and fought against it and captured it. Now, a couple things here. So, uh, the commander-in-chief of the Assyrian army uh, would have been known as the Tartan or the uh, Turtanu in, uh, in the Akkadian language, um, and he's sent by a king named Sargon. So, this would be Sargon II who takes his name after a very ancient Akkadian king, um, the his, the name is uh, Sharukain, which means the king is legitimate, which is the kind of name that you give yourself if, uh, as was the case with this Assyrian king, um, you come to the throne through a military coup because there is every reason to doubt that you are a legitimate king. Interestingly also, um, for a long time, um, critical biblical scholarship saw this as, um, as uh, a falsehood so because Sargon, of course, there's a Sargon the Great, the king of Akkad, who lived uh, many, many centuries before this. And so, yeah, Isaiah just doesn't have the name right. He's using the name of some ancient king or something until uh, in the 20th century, uh, the Sargon's capital, Durasharukain, was excavated at Khorshabad in Iraq, uh, primarily by University of Chicago, Chicago, etc. And of course, since then, many more uh, things have been excavated uh, to testify to Sargon II's reign. Now, this would have been the king who was the father of Sennacherib. This is the guy who um, dies in the field in battle, and there's um, there's a lot of questions over the legitimacy of um, of uh, Sennacherib's succession, and and also noteworthy, he is the Assyrian king who gets to take credit for the downfall of Samaria. So Tiglath Pileser III, as we've seen, is the first king to move against Samaria, the northern kingdom, succeeded by Shulmanu Asharid as we know him, um, Shalmaneser, but this one is the fifth from 726 to 722. And then uh, Sargon comes to the throne in a military coup. And now I mentioned that we have a lot of other stuff attesting to his reign. One thing which is interesting is Sargon's account of what's going on here. So notice that this is a uh, this is an attack on the city of Ashdod. And indeed, um, Sargon writes about this himself or has it written about in a very interesting inscription. It's spelled T-A-N-G hyphen I, new word, V-A-R, so Tang-E-Var inscription, which is found in the Tang-E-Var pass in Iran. And you should Google that one because it's really interesting. It's like up on this uh, up on this huge ledge where like nobody can reasonably be expected to read it or anything, but it's very interesting. And the translation of it, this is the translation of actually my teacher, K. Lawson Younger Jr., um, translates uh, this section of the whole thing, but in this section, I plundered the city of Ashdod. Yamani, its king, feared my weapons. He fled to the region of the land of Melucha and lived like a thief there. 
Shapataku, uh, king of the land of Melucha, heard about the might of Asher, Nabu, and Marduk, which I had demonstrated over all the lands, and he put Yamani in um, menacles and handcuffs uh, and had him brought before my presence like a captive. So interestingly, this is a nice uh, parallel to what we see going on here. So he fights against Ashdod, captures it, and Yahweh comes to Isaiah and tells him, go and loose the sackcloth from your waist and take off your sandals from your feet. And it says he did this walking naked and barefoot. And that's like the sign, okay? And the way in which the uh, the way in which this sign is to be interpreted is as my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot three years. So he does this for three years, probably not constantly, not doing anything but walking around naked. Um, but he's been doing this for three years as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush. So just like this happened to Ashdod, so will it happen to you. So shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles, uh, both young and old, naked and barefoot, with buttocks uncovered, the nakedness of Egypt. And they will be ashamed and dismayed because of Cush, their hope, and Egypt, their bo- their boast. Who? Who will be ashamed? Uh, probably Judah, right? Because it was tempting when Assyria was a big threat to say, hey, you know, uh, we could turn to the Lord, but that would be a little bit difficult. So why don't we just um, why don't we just form an alliance with one of these stronger kingdoms? Both Egypt and Cush are very powerful, and uh, you will be ashamed of this because this will ultimately be the end of these people. Um, and um, so. Yeah, so that's the uh, that's chapter twenty, which is a very short chapter. All right, then in chapter twenty one, we have another oracle. This this time called Wilderness of the Sea, and so we uh, we first see these whirlwinds in the Negev, which is this uh, southern you know Judean area coming from the wilderness from a terrible land. Okay, so the wind starts to blow, a stern vision. Uh, is told to me, the traitor betrays, the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Media. Now, what are these? Elam is at the heart of the Persian Empire, and the Me- and Media refers to the Medes. And um, who is the kingdom that this that these two are the principal players in tearing down? Well, Babylon, and um, and so. My loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like a woman in labor. I'm bowed bowed down and I can't hear. I'm dismayed. I can't see. My heart staggers. Uh, The twilight I longed for has been turned into trembling. So I can't can't wait for the the day to break forth, that the the night is – that the night would be gone. But now um, it's – there there is no relief. They prepare the table. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Oh, so like they're they're getting ready for a feast of some sort. But no, arise, you princes, oil your shields. Right, that's how you care for leather shields and get them ready for bat battle or leather covered shields. Um, and so, <clears throat> like you know, you're not going to have any twilight. You're not going to have any time for feasting. Uh, it's time to go to battle, Babylon. Uh, so set a watchman and let him tell you what he sees. Uh, he sees riders, horsemen, pairs, riders on donkeys, on camels. Listen, listen very diligently. Um, and then uh, uh, 
he who saw, the, that is the watchman, cried out, I'm standing on, uh, upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, which is not, notice that's not Yahweh, that's my Lord, or Adon, Adonai, um, so he, he could be talking to anyone here, uh, continually by day, I'm at my post stationed, I'm here, I've been here entire nights, and now I see riders coming, horsemen in pairs, and fallen, fallen is Babylon. Okay. And the carved images of her gods are shattered on the ground, um, my, and and now this word is to Israel or to Judah actually, because Judah is the one who uh, is is brutalized by Babylon um, in the future. Right. This is again another one of these oracles that is far in the future, beyond Isaiah's lifetime. Um, oh, my threshed and winnowed one. Okay, so that's the process of separating the wheat from the tr- chaff. And remember this theme in Isaiah, where um, he will, uh, you know, save the small amount of remnant, and so like it'll be like a little bit of fruit on the vine. Um, various metaphors like that, like a stump, like a shoot growing out of a stump. Okay, my threshed and widowed one. Once all the bad has been taken out of you, and it's the few who are righteous who are left. What I have heard from Yahweh of hosts, God of Israel, I announce to you that this nation that will one day destroy you uh, will not last forever. In fact, Isaiah here telling exactly the countries who are going, the nations who are going to move against them and and destroy them uh, and and cause Babylon to fall. Which, of course, is one of the reasons why, if you're coming at this passage from an unbelieving perspective, you might have a lot of suspicion as to whether or not Isaiah wrote this. He, I mean, he gets Elam and Media correct, uh, but of course, we uh, we would look at this um, as as an example of predictive prophecy that the prophet knows things that he only knows because the Lord has revealed them to him. Okay, and then in verse 11, we get another oracle. This one, it's very short. It's uh, concerning Duma, which is a a Judean city close to Philistine uh, territory, where we see, um, again, another watchman. So we see a bit of a connection between these various brief oracles. Um, Calling to, one is calling to me from Seir, okay, the, the Edomite territory, watchman, what time of night? Watchman, what time of night? And the watchman says, morning comes and also night. If you will inquire, inquire and come back again. Notice that you've got another connection between the oracle and the, the fall of Babylon oracle that we just saw, where you have the idea of uh, night turning into day as a metaphor for hope on the horizon and that being frustrated. Um, so morning comes, but also the night. So, you know, it's, um, and that, that could be a variety, there could be a variety of different ways to understand exactly what the imagery is suggesting there. I think the idea is that, um, even if morning is coming night, it's inevitable that night will fall again. Uh, and, and we've seen many times in Isaiah, how darkness and darkness of night is uh, this time of future testing, this time of future travail that is going to come. Then we get another oracle, one concerning Arabia. So we don't see a lot of stuff directed towards Arabia in the Old Testament, but this of course would be the area far east of the Jordan, uh, beyond 
you know, um, Ammon and Moab and all of that um, Arabian desert and all that. Um, so it speaks to the caravans of the Dedanites, uh, to the thirsty, bring water, right? That's something you would say in the middle of the desert. Uh, meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tamas. So these are, you know, um, you know, take care of people. You're going to um, uh, bring people peace, bring people uh, refreshment in the wilderness, uh, for they have fled from the swords and from the drawn sword, from the bent bow and from the press of battle. So it's going to reach even then, um, even them. Um, for the Lord said to me, within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end, and the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few, for Yahweh, the God of hosts, has spoken. And then we turn in chapter 22 to Jerusalem, and this is something called the Valley of Vision, which of course is the name of a, a classic co collection of devotional texts. Um, but here, Valley of Vision does not appear to be a good thing because – so think about Jerusalem sitting on a hill, right? And it's got valleys around it, particularly the Kidron Valley. And uh, so if you want to see what's going on around, notice the – remember the theme of seeing in today's readings like Watchmen and stuff. And even here, this called Valley of Vision, right? The valley is not the place where you're going to see what's going on around you. It's where you're going to be ignorant, blinded to it until um, until the enemy is, is – um, is upon you. And so Valley of Vision is, sounds somewhat sarcastic. Um, and, um, and But here in particular, why are you in the valley? Why are we in the valley? Why are we not in Jerusalem? And so we're about to find out. What do you mean that you have gone up, all of you, to the housetops? Uh, you who were who are full of shoutings, a tumultuous city and exalted town. So here this bustling metropolis, right? Why are you up on your housetops right now? Um, uh, and then, and then you get the vision of of what is actually going on there. Uh, you, there's people dead, but not by the sword, right? Or they're not dead in battle, so they haven't fought. Okay, but they're dead. Um, all of your leaders have fled together. Okay, I'm getting the picture here. Remember what happens when Jerusalem eventually falls, right? The king leaves the city. Um, and is captured um, on the outskirts of the city. So you have the leaders fleeing, having fled the city. You have people uh, lying around dead, but not from war, perhaps denoting death in the time of a, the siege, um, or death uh, simply not putting up a fight, but being hunted down in the field by the Babylonian army. Um, all you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. Uh, therefore, I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. And obviously the the prime, like the, the big example of this that we're given in the Bible is the way that the king, King Zedekiah, flees and is captured and um, his sons are slaughtered before him and then he's blinded. So once again, we see Isaiah looking into the future and seeing the way in which Jerusalem will fall, right? With people being slain by the sword, but not in battle, rather having fled the city. And then Isaiah says, in that day, you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest. Now, he's going to start describing things that they did in preparation for uh, the coming invasion, and it's unclear exactly where to set this historically. Now, obviously, one of these could be 
uh, Sennacherib's uh, invasion. In fact, if we if we um, connect verses 15 and following to uh, this this oracle that we're about to look at, um, then it really does seem to be Sennacherib's invasion because of uh, because of um, uh, we, we characters are named here, particularly these high officials Shebna and then Eliakim, and we know that these were the officials during the reign of Hezekiah. And if that's the case, number one, we might be um, we might be justified in seeing the whole Valley of Vision oracle as belonging to that rather than the final destruction of Jerusalem. Although you know it's hard to decide between that because uh, we also do have Babylon in this in this context. Um, uh, but it, on the other hand, a, it kind of does look like the invasion that happened at the time of Sennacherib, because at the time of Hezekiah, because um, he does all of all of this preparation that was made. What is is noted here? So you saw that the um, breaches in the city of David were, were many. So your vulner your vulnerabilities, and so what did you do? You collected the waters from the lower pool. Um, you counted the houses in Jerusalem and started breaking them down and using them to fortify the walls. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. All these things that uh, really sound like the preparations that Hezekiah made. Although, again, the, the counter to that might be, well, any um, any time Judah would have had knowledge of an incoming army, this would have been a, these would have been appropriate measures to take. So it's a you know it's difficult. Is it is it Hezekiah's reign, or is it the final fall of Jerusalem, um, or or perhaps one of the other times armies to, marched against Jerusalem? It's hard to know for sure. But interestingly, and this is the thing that makes it difficult to see it as Hezekiah, is it says, "But you did not look to him who did it." In other words, you did all of these things to protect yourselves. But the whole reason this is happening to uh, to you. Uh, that that the Lord is bringing this about, the Lord is bringing this upon you. Um, you did. That's the one thing you did not do was look to Him, the one who planned it long ago. And this is this is a little difficult to get to uh, to to see how this would fit in with the description of Hezekiah's reign in Second Kings and Second Chronicles, because that is a time of great religious reform, and it's difficult to see the prophet or the Lord as dissatisfied with what Hezekiah did with respect to that. However, um, note that the invasion of Sennacherib takes place significantly into the reign of Hezekiah, um, and it might be that the religious reforms were instituted, uh, and then when Sargon uh, uh dies and Sennacherib takes the throne and Hezekiah decides to rebel against him, uh, Hezekiah starts really taking matters into his own hands and uh, may perhaps abandoned the Lord somewhat and, and perhaps the kingdom slid back into wickedness or idolatry. Ultimately, it's very difficult to, to, to discern. So, um, but if we if we do take this as referring to the final destruction of Jerusalem, then there's a significant break uh, between verses 14 and 15, uh, when he starts talking about, um, the prophet starts talking about these officials that we know uh, were during Hezekiah's time. So, uh, yeah, um, now, um, uh, I, I think it's also noteworthy if you look in verse 13 that 
uh, what's going on here is God is calling for this time of repentance, right? The the weeping, mourning, baldness, wearing of sackcloth. But instead, what you're doing is you're feasting. You should have been while you should have been repenting, you were feasting, um, joy and gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh, drinking wine, and saying, "Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die." Which of course is quoted by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 as to what our attitude might as well be if there is no resurrection from the dead. But here, the idea is that, you know, there's going to be this 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 terrible invasion, and, and uh, rather than turning to the Lord, let's fortify our city, and, but realize that that's probably not going to do anything either, so we might as well have a good time before we're all dead. And of course, this is this is the attitude of somebody who doesn't have the future hope and the resurrection of the dead of the dead as well, right? We know the judge. We know uh, we're done for, and so we might as well uh, enjoy ourselves while we last, because you don't have this future hope of glory. You don't have this future hope of resurrection with Christ. Um, uh, but uh, but God sees this as a, a very evil attitude to take. And he says, surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, which is an interesting use of the term atonement. Okay, then um, in chapter 22, at the end, like the second half of this chapter, um, we have uh, the instruction coming to Isaiah to go to the steward of the, of the, uh, the royal steward to Shebna, who has this title, who is over the household. And I've noted this when we've seen this in the past. Several individuals have this title. It may be something like prime minister. It's a it's an important official. We don't know a lot more about it. Um, the official Hebrew term is Asher al-Habayit. Um, we know of, of uh, a man named Arza who held this post in the northern kingdom under the reign of King Baasha in 1 Kings 16.9. Uh, we know of... Um, Obadiah, who also held this in the northern kingdom under King Ahab from 1 Kings 18.3. We have another one who is unnamed, also at around the time of uh, Ahab, um, uh, although although during the days of his successor. Uh, in 2 Kings 10.5, this is the one who sends the 70 sons of Ahab uh, their heads in baskets to Jehu. Uh, and then finally, we have this guy whom we meet here, who is Shebna, to be succeeded by Eliakim. So, um, so he is he is at this very high position, but and you know he's and he's really made a name for himself. In fact, he's he's ready to memorialize his legacy, carving out a nice tomb for himself to be remembered for all these ages to come. What it says? What have what have you to do here, doing all this? Because the Lord. Um, rejects you. You've given poor counsel. You are not a good Asher al-Habayit. And so Yahweh will hurl you away violently, you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and and whirl you around, right? Like like wind you up and throw you um, out like a ball into the wide land, and there you shall die. There shall be your all your glorious chariots um, you shame of your master's house. And it's hard to know exactly what this guy did, but Isaiah knows, um, Shebna knows, and it appears that at the very least he's in support of the strategy that Judah has adopted, which has involved everything except for turning to the Lord 
And so God says, I'm going to instead call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. These are all characters, by the way, whom we meet in 2 Kings 18 and 19 um, uh, as well. Um, but <clears throat> I'm going to take uh, your position and I'm going to give it to him. I'm going to clothe him with your robe, put your sash on him, and commit your authority to his hand. So I'm going to give him this office. And indeed, when we meet these guys in Second Kings, it is Eliakim who is the Asher al-Habayit, the who was over the household, and it is Shebna who is the secretary at that time. And um, and I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. So he's going to be the boss of the um, you know the, the 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 tip of the spear for the Davidic monarchy. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will uh, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. So the one who will actually have a legacy here will be this Eliakim. But even this guy, even this Eliakim, um, is not his faithfulness will not last forever. Okay, um, and it says in that day declares Yahweh of hosts the peg that was fastened in a secure place, which is that's Eliakim from verse 23, will give way and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for Yahweh has spoken. Here, very much um, in line with this theme that we've seen running here, that, um, you know, even if the morning breaks, right, night will come again. So even this guy who's going to, you know, honor me and do a good job, says the Lord, he even he will not last forever and will eventually fail. Uh, finally, in Isaiah, we see this oracle concerning the Phoenician city of Tyre, and the the big the big uh, thing about them is they are seafaring these merchants, these these great uh, middlemen uh, going all throughout the land, enriching themselves through all of this trade, and so you've got. Um, uh, the ships of Tarshish now, Tarshish, of course, where Jonah wanted to go, probably, it's probably in Spain, so these really long-range, impressive ships, wail, all you ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor. So he's taking away exactly their means of wealth. Um, from the land of Cyprus, it is revealed to them. So all these these areas, sound these far-off places you need boats to get to, um, uh, are are lamenting and are seeing the down going to see the downfall of Tyre. Be still, O inhabitants of the coast and merchants of Sidon, another important Phoenician city who crossed to the sea have filled you. Um, and so, yeah, the, this 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 merchant of the nations is now Pete. The nations will be ashamed and will have to cover their eyes because of the destruction. So in verse 5, the report reaches Egypt, what happened to them, and there will be an anguish over them, as will all of the inhabitants of the coast. Is this your exultant city, whose origin is from days of old, whose feet carried her to settle far away? And and their downfall, their downfall uh, it must be made known, is that it is of Yahweh of hosts who has purposed it, to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. Um, cross over your land like the Nile, as the Nile snakes through Egypt, right? Go through your land, O daughter of Tarshish. There is no restraint anymore. 
Yahweh has stretched out his hand over the sea, shaken the kingdoms. Yahweh has given his command concerning Canaan to destroy its strongholds. Um, Phoenician, Phoenicia is often associated very strongly with Canaan. In fact, like a lot of the religion and language from there in the studies of the ancient world are essentially, you know, what they do there is considered to be the primary evidence for what Canaanites did and how they wrote in the language that they spoke and the, uh, the religion that they had. Um, so we see the close association here. Um, and, and he said, the Lord said, you will no more exult, O oppressed virgin daughter of Sidon. Arise, cross over to Cyprus. Even there you will have no rest. Because um, the land of the Chaldeans is coming against you. Again, this is Babylon. A people that was not um, Assyria had destined it for wild beasts, right? So, and it, it springs up um, and takes the place of Assyria. We saw this happens in 605 BC, um, erecting siege towers, stripping her palaces bare, making Assyria a ruin. Um, and so, and this is going to be disastrous for Tyre and these other nations that depend um, on their wealth. And just like as we've seen, the judgment on Judah is said well, is said to um, happen for 70 years. So here at the end of 70 years, Yahweh will visit Tyre and she shall return to her wages and will prostitute herself with all the kingdoms of the world on the face of the earth. So this judgment will last 70 years and then it'll be back up to, to its old things, right, to, to, to making wealth all around the world. And um, I think it's noteworthy that this is how uh, Babylon the Great in the book of Revelations is kind of portrayed. There's a lot of similarity here that um, she is a prostitute on many waters, and when she falls, all the kings of the earth wail because uh, this is the one uh, whose trade they all benefited from, not because they care about her, but because uh, she brought them so much wealth, so much prosperity. Okay, let's go now to Proverbs 22, verses 7 through 16. So, the rich rules over the poor, the borrower is the slave of the lender. So, these are important things to know about the way God's world works. Um, and, of course, the, you know, so a lot of wisdom here, uh, particularly in um, how much debt I think we, we accrue, right? The borrower is the slave of the lender. Keep that in mind. It's not necessarily saying you can never borrow anything, but... If you do, this is the situation you could get yourself into. Um, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, um, sowing and reaping, right? And the rod of his fury will fail. So if you are unjust, and think about the prophets and Isaiah and all they've been saying about this, right? People who are unjust, calamity from the Lord will come. And and then verse 9, whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed. The 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 Hebrew is literally tov ayin. It's literally a, whoever has a good eye. And it's hard to know exactly what that means. Whoever has a good eye will be blessed. Um, but we do see the opposite of this, the ra ayin, the bad eye in 23.6 and 28.22, which there appears to mean something like stingy. So the opposite of that would be generous. Whoever is generous will be blessed, uh, for he shares his bread with the poor. Okay, and so notice how nicely that fits with the uh, the second the second line. So the bountiful eye here probably means generous. 
um, drive out a scoffer and strife will go out. So the one who's spreading rumors and, and, and saying bad things about people, get rid of them. And guess what? Strife will no longer be there. Um, quarreling and abuse will cease. He who loves purity of heart, right? He doesn't just he doesn't just do it because he has to, but he loves what it means to be pure of heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king as his friend. So that can take you places. The eyes of Yahweh keep watch over knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the traitor. Okay, the, the treacherous, the unfaithful in their obligations. This is often, sometimes used in the Old Testament of people who are unfaithful in their marriage. Uh, then, then I, uh, then I, I, I like verse thirteen. Right, the sluggard says, "There is a lion outside. I shall be killed in the streets." Uh, now, what is this? Uh, I think it's basically um, he um, saying to the sluggard, "You know, get out of your house. Go do something." It's, it's, you know, why are you so afraid to go and uh, and 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 live a prosperous life and live a, a productive life? Right? Are you are you afraid that there's um, that, that you're going to be killed by a lion in the streets. Um, get out, go do something, make something of yourself. Um, the mouth of, uh, of forbidden women is a deep pit. He whom Yahweh is angry with will fall into it. Uh, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. So here we have the benefit of discipline again. Um, because children are born and they can easily be given to foolishness. And so how do you drive foolishness out but by, but through discipline? And rod here, I will again emphasize, does not mean uh, corporal punishment. Okay, think of how much how many rods we've been seeing uh, in the Old Testament um, uh, representing rule, right? Representing um, things that are used for correction, things that are used for chastisement. So it's a big toolbox. Um, the Shevet Musar, the rod of instruction, the rod of discipline. It is simply uh, a metaphor for, for discipline. Um, and finally, whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Okay, finally, let's look at 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 15. So uh, Paul here gives us, uh, in, th in these verses that we're looking at today, uh, I think fleshes out kind of a lot more of the substance of the opposition to him at Corinth, the people who have caused trouble. And so you have several parties whom I think it's important to distinguish. You've got the um, the individuals who are uh, in the church of Corinth who had been swayed against Paul and who had made things very difficult for him. And uh, right, those are the people that are called to repentance. Here today, I think we see outside people who have come into them and really fed that fire. Okay, and these are individuals whom he is here going to be referring to as the quote unquote super apostles. These are people with letters of recommendation uh, who come and badmouth Paul and feed this already negative sentiment that there was towards him in the Corinthian church. So here's how he tackles this. He says, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. So notice what, what he's just said uh, from yesterday, the end of what we read yesterday, okay, that 
Um, he's not commending himself to them. He's not comparing himself with himself with others. Like that's not his way of doing things. Rather, it's the one who whom the Lord commends who is approved. Okay, but now he's going to be comparing himself, and now he's going to be commending himself. So, even though those principles he shared yesterday are true, it's kind of necessary for him to do this a little bit to get them to see. Um, um, you know, who he really is to get him to them to understand his apostolic ministry. So bear with me in a little bit of foolish talk here. Um, um, and, and the reason why I feel it's important for me to talk this way to you is because I feel a divine jealousy for you, right? The kind of zeal for, uh, for, for, his, for, for uh, God's people that God has I feel the same kind for you, and it's justified, right? Because I, I'm right to feel about this way, just like God is right to feel this way about his people when they turn, around, uh, turn away from him in the places where God is described as jealous, or, or perhaps we might say zealous, okay? Paul himself feels this way. Um, since I betrothed you to one husband, so notice uh, two here, the, the fittingness of putting jealousy language uh, along with implications of don't be adulterous, right? A husband is right to feel, quote-unquote, jealous for a wife who is turning his back, her back on him. And here, um, I betrothed you to a husband, to Christ, right, as a pure virgin to Christ, and I'm afraid that you're being deceived, just like Eve was deceived, right? The first wife was deceived by the serpent's cunning, I'm afraid that you are being led away from a sincere a devote and pure devotion to Christ, right? You want to know why I've made the big deal about this these things that you've needed to correct in my letters and in my visits to you? It's because I I I'm the matchmaker here, you with Christ, and I want you to be a pure virgin for Christ. Um I don't want you to be deceived. Uh and so I feel this jealousy, and so I will boast a little bit. Um so bear with me in my foolish boasting. If someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, and we don't know exactly what Paul has in mind here, um, does he have in mind like a works-based gospel or something? Or is it even a gospel that is void of a good theology of suffering, of, of uh, m- kind of maybe what we might identify as like a health and wealth kind of thing, right? So look at Paul. He's a loser. He's, he's not wealthy. He's not well-spoken. He's not impressive. He doesn't have a lot of worldly wisdom. We do, though, and that's why you should listen to us. We, you know, um, that, that that is in conflict with the gospel message, right? Like that that's not—one uh, way to think of it is, like, if you love the things—if if you are a Christian and you love the things that you would be in love with even if you didn't know Christ, something is wrong, Right, like I want to love. Be, becoming a Christian, becoming a, a follower of Jesus, causes me to have uh, delight in and causes me to love that which is of God. Right, but if as a Christian I'm just I love getting new stuff, I love um, having nice stuff, I love being thought well of in the world, I like people looking up to me. You'd want those things even if you weren't a Christian. That there's nothing distinctive about the kingdom of God in that, and so. That might be part of the the different Jesus, the the Jesus of uh, the Jesus of popularity, the Jesus of wealth, a different Jesus. Um, 
so if, if someone comes and proclaims that kind of Jesus to you, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, and this is one of those places where we wish that Greek letters were, <laughs> Greek used capitalization the same way that, that English did, because it's like, is that the Holy Spirit? Or is this like spirit as in like an attitude that you have? And I don't think there's a, there's a definite way to tell here. But, um, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accept, uh, accepted, right? All these things, major problems in your faith. You put up with it readily enough. Um, you know, you're not guarded enough about this stuff. And that's why I was so concerned about you. Um, indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least bit inferior to these quote unquote super apostles. Okay, these guys who have come in, remember I said we distinguish between the various parties at Corinth. These are people who have come in from the outside and have influenced the Corinthian church. And you know what? They like to talk about how they like to, to put me down and to and to try to get you to, to buy into their worldly way of thinking um, by how impressive they are. Um, guess what? I'm not in the least bit inferior to them. And I'm and here is that point of comparison, right? Where he's like, like he has to engage in a little bit of foolish boasting, quote unquote, in order to make that comparison. Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, right? His letters are weighty and impressive, but when he's here, he's, his presence is of no account, right? Even if I'm unskilled in speaking, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? Okay, Paul talks about how he does this. First uh, Corinthians nine, he he talks about this a lot, right? Um, and we've seen this, right? Paul comes, he works among them, and here we learned that he also received support from other churches as well, particularly Macedonia, which is interesting, right? Because Macedonia are poor churches, whereas Corinth, as far as we can tell, had some pretty wealthy individuals in it. And yet he would not take money from them, not because they couldn't afford it, they couldn't afford to pay him for his ministry, the Corinthians, right? But because of what that would have said, that that it, it would have been open to the charge that Paul is doing this for money and that he... Uh, uh, applies his trade, his gospel preaching, according uh, to the flesh as, a um, as opposed to according to the Spirit. So it's for very theological reasons that Paul supported himself and received support from already established and thriving churches rather than in the areas in which he planted. And indeed, in Acts 18, when he goes to Corinth, we see him doing it this way, right? We see he takes up residence with Priscilla and Aquila, who were both tent makers as well there, and and refuses to do this. But now these super apostles, they've turned it against him. Because I don't know if you remember, but I pointed out a few um, uh, several days ago that there is kind of this idea, and I think we see this today as well, that if something's free, it must be cheap. Okay, so. Uh, oh yeah, Paul won't even take money from you because he can't even he can't charge you for the kind of um, poor rhetoric that he delivers. Right, his ministry is so unimpressive he has to give it away for free. You could easily see this being one of their criticisms to him, and um, and so yeah, so he talks about how these these other churches are supporting him, how he's supporting himself. He even uses this hyperbolic language, I robbed other churches to give it to you. Obviously, Paul's not saying, I stole from them, right? 
it's this hyperbolic language here that he's using. Um, so I refrained, and guess what? When I come back to you, it's going to be the same thing. I will continue to refrain from burdening you in any way because I know how much of a stumbling block this is to you. As the truth of Christ is in me, my boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. Remember in 1 Corinthians 9, 15, he said that he would rather die than have someone um, deprive him of his ground for boasting, and there he's talking about his ability to present the gospel free of charge. And he does this because, he said, because I do not love you, no, but because I do. God knows I love you. And I'm going to continue to do things this way so that the, in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim in their boasted mission that they work on the same terms as, as we do, that they were sent by Jesus. No, I'm undermining that. I want you to see that they are not. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostle of, apostles of Christ. And this should be no surprise to you because even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Uh, their end will correspond to their deeds. All right, everybody, that's it for today. As always, I thank you for being with me, and I look forward to being with you again tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.